Turn with me your Bible, please, to read together this morning from the text to which we have moved in Judges chapter 12. And we shall read together only the first seven verses of the record of the Judges of Israel chapter 12. And the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and didst not call us to go with thee? We will burn thine house upon thee with fire. Jephthah said unto them, I and my people were at a great strife with the children of Ammon. And when I called you, you delivered me not out of their hands. And when I saw that ye delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore then are ye come up unto me this day? Fight against me. Then Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote Ephraim because they said, Ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim from Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so that when those Ephraimites which were escaped said, Let me go over. The men of Gilead said unto them, Art thou an Ephraimite? And he said, Nay. Then said they unto him, Say, Sibboleth. For he could not frame, to, sorry, say Sheboleth. And he said Sheboleth. For he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. And there fell at that time of the Ephraimites forty and two thousand. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then died Jephthah the Gileadite, was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. <clears throat> Turn with me, if you will, please, to your hymn book, number 723. Stand with me, please. <laughs> Soldiers of Christ, arise and gird your armor on. Strong in the strength which God supplies through His 
eternal Son, strong in the Lord of hosts, and in His mighty power, the man who in the Savior trusts is more than conqueror. Stand then in His great might, with all His strength and do, and take to arm you for the fight, the panoply of God, that having all things done, and all your conflict past, you may overcome through Christ alone and stand complete at last. From strength to strength go on, wrestle and fight and pray, tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. Still let the Spirit cry in all His soldiers come till Christ the Lord descends from high and takes the conqueror's home. Be seated. I shall take for a title for all the messages how many ever there is to be of these first seven verses in Judges 12. I would hang over them this title, Great Triumph. Breeds great trial. It is a law, surely. As we shall yet see in a future message, in verse 8 and following of this chapter, this 12th chapter of Judges, we shall see that the record of many of Israel's judges is so brief as to make that record of Jephthah seem almost extensive. Some of them not even given a full verse, only a phrase. We followed Jephthah, however, from the beginning of his exile through his recovering and through his recovering to Israel and then his exaltation into this total victory over an insurmountable enemy. We've seen his glorious triumph for Israel's national security. Not only have we watched his public life in this 11th chapter, not only have we watched his public life and career, but we've been made privy to his private life and to the enormous sorrows 
of his private life and to the unbearable personal grief of his soul's losses. In all these things, surely we would feel well satisfied that we've seen enough. Surely we've seen the whole man in the biography laid out in chapter 11. We would say, surely this is biography enough to give us food for contemplation for years to come. And it no doubt is exactly that. But by divine inspiration, this biography is not yet over. By divine inspiration, this biography is not yet complete. Before we see this great soul finished on the pages of the sacred record, one scene more remains. One painful scene more. And this pain-filled scene is not inflicted by God's enemies. No, nor is it even inflicted by his own impulsive folly this time, as we've seen before. This last painful scene in his biography is launched like a flaming arrow from the bow of his own brethren. Verse 1 of chapter 12 reads like this. The men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and didst not call us to go with thee? We will burn thine house upon thee with fire. His own brethren. Most Bible scholars estimate when viewing this scene, estimate conservatively that there were not less than 50,000 of these that are called men of Ephraim that are said to have come together in this unholy errand intent on Jephthah's total destruction. The good Dr. Gill said this, they were in great wrath and fury and argued not only from the height of pride and envy, but wretched ingratitude and cruel disposition. Instead of congratulating him as Israel's deliverer and consoling him for the loss of his only child, they threatened him in the most brutish manner. 
his brethren. We might well get an understanding of the magnitude of this treachery by noting Jerome's translation of these words. You'll notice in, if you have an old King James Bible, there is a marginal reading on that gathered word gathered. The marginal reading is they were called, but I think that reading as well is a struggle to try to convey what the Hebrew actually says. Because in the Hebrew, it's in the passive voice. And Jerome translates it this way. And there arose a sedition in Ephraim, stirring each other up. And thus they formed, he says, a loose and tumultuous mob. Later, he says that the text clearly conveys that, quote, a mutual clamor and vociferation, they excited themselves into a mad sedition. His brethren. Ephraim was certainly the largest and the most powerful of all the tribes of Israel and always thought that they had a hereditary primacy among her tribes. You remember Joshua was from this tribe, the tribe of Ephraim. And you'll remember that he was not without trouble from them himself on account of their arrogance. You remember in Judges, sorry, Joshua, Chapter 17 and verse 14. And the children of Joseph spake to the, unto Joshua saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit? See, I, seeing I am a great people for as much as the Lord has blessed me hitherto. And Joseph answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country. Cut down for, thy, for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites. And the giants, and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. And the children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites that dwell in the land and in the valley have chariots of iron. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people, and hast great power. Thou shalt not have one lot only. But the mountain shall be thine, for it is of wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine, for thou hast driven out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. Joshua suffered at the hands of these same people. And for the exact same reason, their insistence on preeminence. Ephraim not unlike some people today, thought that the maintenance of their dignity ought to be the first consideration for all the tribes. <laughs> Have you ever seen that in a church before? Someone who truly believed that their dignity ought to be the primary consideration 
of all concern. So was Ephraim. This same vile and prideful spirit was displayed in our Lord's day as it is also in ours. Says one commentator, they seem to have thought that being the chief tribe, they were entitled to be considered first in everything. That their advice was always to be sought. Their wishes were always to be consulted. And that the maintenance of their dignity ought to be the first consideration for all others. And yet we do not find them maintaining their claims by preeminent zeal for the public service, by a spirit of self-sacrificing for the public good, nor by furnishing the most eminent men to take a lead in the military affairs. They talked a big talk, we would say. But they didn't bring to the table any help. This commentator said they were not the first to risk life and limb against the Midianite host. They were not the first to repel the invasion of the children of Ammon. Their own dignity and not the country's good was their chief concern. And hence when an unknown Gideon, one of the inferior houses of Manasseh, a half-caste Jephthah, on the other side of Jordan, when he rose to the rank, first rank as the savior of their country, the envy of Ephraim burst out into a flame. It was an invasion of the prerogative of the great people. It was presumption. It was a slight put upon Ephraim. No punishment was too bad for their insolence, so they thought. It was very much the same spirit which showed itself in the Pharisees when our Lord's fame as a teacher drew such multitudes to hear him. They thought they had the monopoly on teaching that no doctrine which did not emanate from their school ought to be listened to. That the knowledge could proceed from no mouth but that of their rabbis. So when the carpenter's son opened his mouth and poured forth his lessons of exquisite wisdom and power and enchained the attention of the multitudes and was acknowledged as a prophet, their envy was excited. Instead of rejoicing that God had sent them a teacher, mighty in word indeed, they only plotted how they might silence his eloquent tongue. Instead of sitting at his feet, and learning at his mouth the true will of God and the way of life, they were only roused to hatred and pursued the multitude to say, Let him be crucified! But then our commentator says, This same spirit is common in our own days in most congregations. The small-minded envy of great deeds from the small. But God's gifts are not confined to any caste or class, and they only are truly great who rejoice in great 
qualities wherever they're found. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 4 says, Who can stand before envy? Surely none, surely none, and certainly not yet. This is a terrible scene in this record this morning that I've read. This is a terrible scene. This is a terrible crime. But before we would hasten on in our text, let us pause this morning and gather up the great lessons from just the fragments of this first verse. I give you lesson number one. As a general observation from this text, may I suggest to your heart, we find that those who cannot or will not engage in a work to improve it will eventually fall into condemning it. Those who cannot, or as we will find later in this text, those who will not engage in the work to improve it will eventually fall to condemning it. They had done nothing to assist Jephthah. He sought their help, we read it. They declined to send any help. There's a wonderful phrase. I hope to open it up to you in a later sermon where he says, I put my life in my own hands and I went out. And they did nothing until it was over. And then they went into condemning it. Oh, I've seen this so many times over the years. Those who will not soil their hands to help the work will engage in condemning it. To say it another way, those who are reluctant to encounter the danger of battle are often quick to criticize those who do. Weak and selfish people who will not enter into the enterprise until they see it succeed are plentiful enough, says one author, but worthless. Said one commentator, true men are they who will advocate the righteous cause when it is at a low, low ebb. When it is unpopular, when it seems doomed to failure, when the service of it involves risk and loss, these are true men who will ascribe the truth then. Wife and I were having a conversation yesterday along these lines. And I reminded her of what Brother Roloff had said in 1971 
when he went before the court state of Texas. And he said to the brothers, the Southern Baptist brethren that he had pastored with for many years, he, they said, many of them called him and said, Brother Roloff, we're behind you. And he said to them, how far behind? <laughs> but he said, when I landed that day in the Texas court, not a face, not a one of them was there. Nobody showed their face in the court. True men, said this commentator, are they who will advocate the righteous cause when it's at a loyal. And brethren, I'll tell you, you don't have to rise to great heights to find a place to do that these days. We're at a very low ebb and truth and righteousness is at the lowest ebb it's ever been. Now would be a great time to advocate for the right cause when it's unpopular, when it seems doomed to failure, when the service of it involves risk and loss. True men will stand. Said another commentator, it is no new thing for those who are themselves most culpable to be the most clamorous in accusing the innocent. Lesson number one. I give you lesson number two. I wanted to share with you as, as a lesson if you please, as one lesson, something that one scholar found in this text. He said he sees in this text a threefold, the most common threefold cause for attacking goodness. And I remind you again, I don't have to tell you we are in an hour when goodness is under violent attack. Even from the brethren. I give you this scholar's threefold causes from this text as one lesson. Causes for attacking goodness. First of all, he says the spirit in which they are wrought is misunderstood or misinterpreted. The spirit in which the goodness has been wrought is either misunderstood or misinterpreted. He said the key to our judgments of others is in ourselves. If then we are evil, our judgments will be perverted. All through the history of God's church, this influence is apparent from the old ill-natured query we find in the friends of Job when they said, Does Job serve God for naught? Hmm. Judging Job's motives, the spirit in which his work was wrought. 
misunderstanding or intentionally misinterpreting the spirit in which a thing is wrought will cause man to fight against goodness. The culminating wickedness is described in the gospel. John chapter 1 verse 5, 10 and 11. The light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. He was in the world. The world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came to his own and his own received him not. To the pure, all things are pure and vice versa. The judgment is made. The goods, the spirit in which goodness is performed is either misunderstood or misinterpreted. That's a cause for com- a common cause for fighting against good. Secondly, he said, those good works present an unwelcome contrast to the conduct of others. Oh yes, oh yes. Good works, good works done in righteous deeds, righteous deeds done in a righteous way from a righteous heart, they present an unwelcome contrast to the conduct of others. Said this commentator, every good deed is as a light which brings a view of things like kind and inspires similar behavior but it also reveals the hideousness and hatefulness of the ordinary life of a man. This is an offense against self-love. The sinner's self-love and therefore is unpardonable. It is, a, it is also an exposure of the hypocrisy and sad inconvenience of the hypocrite. Second reason for cause to attack goodness. It's an unwelcome contrast to the conduct of others. And thirdly, many will attack good deeds because of the honor they acquire. For their authors is coveted by bad men. When good men do good things, it brings honor to them, or it ought to bring honor to them, and that honor is coveted by bad men. And so they'll attack it. He said to minds not actuated by the spirit of goodness, The only thing that can be desired in good works is the outward fame and advantage that they bring. The exclusion from this is keenly resented. Hundreds are eager to share the crown of righteousness who are far from breathing his spirit or emulating his example. They want the glory. They want the glory. And if they can't have the glory, if they can't share in the glory, as these Ephraimites could not share in the glory of Jephthah's victory, if they can't share in the victory, then the glory, then they'll attack the goodness of what they've done. 
I give you that as lesson number two. Lesson number three. From verse one. We're just trying to work our way through verse one. Here's a lesson we dare not miss. Although it is not easily discerned on the surface of our text. One, here's the lesson, one particular sin may be found to cling tenaciously to one man, one family, one tribe, for many generations repeatedly. One sin, one prevailing, predominant sin, may be found to cling tenaciously to one family for many generations. Dear old Rogers wisely preached this. He said in this verse, whereas this sin of contending and dissembling in these Ephraimites is not, is found to be not in one, but many generations of them. As partly we have heard already in chapter 8 of this book, where we see the Ephraimites did the same to Gideon. And then, that these, their posterity, did the same to Jephthah. And afterward, the like pride is read to be in their posterity. It teaches how a sin keepeth in a kindred for many generations after as treason, whoredom, dissembling, and any such like. Such taints and stains are not worn out. They are not worn out until special grace of God do work and effect them out. Oh, blessed Lord delivers. Not a father could hear these words and his heart not groan in himself. His spirit groan within him. Oh, God delivered my posterity from the stains that have stained me. One sin. Oh, Ephraim, when this chapter opens up, well, page opens again in the life of Ephraim, past, present, future. One sin has stained them throughout the generations. The pride of preeminence. Says Rogers, that may not be the specific sin of you, but there is the danger that one sin one sin will cling to a family until special grace brought it out. God help us. Lesson number four. Quickly now. Here's a fourth great lesson. 
great afflictions, the most painful assaults often come not from the proclaimed enemies of God, but from brethren. Greatest afflictions, the most painful assaults, often come not from the enemies of God, but from brethren. Those of us who've been reading the emails I've been sending out, you know something about the pain of this. Dear old Bush had this to say, although from being both the son both the sons of Joseph, they were nearer akin than any other of the tribes. <clears throat> Yet between none other of the tribes was there such a burning spirit of rivalry and disaffection as between these. The conduct of the Ephraimites on this occasion compared with their complaints to Joshua and their hostile attitude toward Gideon clearly evidences a disposition to lord it over the other tribes with an authority and preeminence to which they were certainly not entitled. We are reminded by the incidences of this narrative that quarrels between brethren are usually most bitter and violent. Scripture says a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And their contentions are as the bars of a castle. They have done the greatest service to the cause of God. For that they are not secure from the greatest insults, even sometimes from pretended friends of the cause. The most spotless characters are often the chosen marks for the things of envy to fasten on. I said we'd title the message from the greatest victory. Greatest triumph breeds the greatest trial. The most spotless characters are often the chosen marks for the fangs to fasten on. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 19. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Their contentions are like the bars of a castle. Number five, quickly. I give you this. One's greatest work, or if you prefer the word contribution, or if you prefer the word accomplishment, one's greatest work may, in God's providence, become his greatest source of sorrow. One's greatest work may become his greatest source of sorrow. Dear old Jephthah, surely 
He'll be remembered preeminently for this. He destroyed the Ammonites. His greatest work. And for it, he lost his daughter. And he acquired the hatred of his brothers. Hmm. Man's greatest work may in God's providence be the source of his greatest sorrow. No wonder the scriptures admonish us in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Let us not be weary. For knowing this truth, knowing this lesson, weariness is a danger. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good. Oh, men, Especially unto them who are the household of faith. No wonder we're admonished to do that. Oh, how very weary was our Lord who inspired those words, be not weary in well-doing. How weary was our Lord in his tireless labors and how terribly maligned and misunderstood and misrepresented and misinterpreted and yet he failed not. Do good. Oh, your greatest work, my saint friend, your greatest work may be the source of your greatest pain, but labor on. Labor on. Be not weary. Labor on. Your Father in heaven keeps the accounts. Someone as well said that benefactors in every age have met with a like reception as kept with every age, but labor on. Jephthah was already grieving with a pain almost too great for a mere mortal to bear. Loss of his daughter. And then along comes these godless ingrates crying, We'll burn your house down with you in it. All the lengths to which the unrighteous will go, it knows no bounds. Someone said those resentments that have the least reason for them commonly have the most rage in them. You know that well. You know that from the scripture. You know that from Hebrews chapter 11. I said, I'll say it again. I quoted this brother said resentments that have the least reason commonly have the most rage. Hebrews chapter 11, this record is full of them, is it not? 
Verse 35, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging. Moreover, of the bonds and imprisonments, they were stoned, they were sown asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being just destitute and afflicted and tormented. Who are these people? They are those of whom the world is not worthy. They did not deserve it. They did not deserve it. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these having obtained a good report through faith. Receive not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made. I said wicked men, their resentments that have the least reason for them commonly have the most rage in them. Because evil men hate good. Finally, I give you a final lesson. And I hope this lesson will leave you with hope and will encourage your heart to remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding by learning this. Afflictions are the common Daily diet. All God's beloved. Afflictions are the common daily diet of all God. And they are the means of his wonderful grace in them. Oh, oh I love his preaching. I love his preaching. Preaching in 1615. The ever wise and ever pastoral Rogers said this, and I excerpted from his one of his messages. Looking at this verse one at this text, Rogers said, Oh, how one affliction, one affliction arose to this good man after another. As the trouble he had by his daughter was accompanied in some sort with this that came to him by his neighbors. Whereby we may see the condition of God's people as in a glass that they are ever wrapped into new combats and troubles daily so as the end of one seems to be the beginning of another. As we see in the book of Job, it is said of his troubles how one complaint came to him in the neck of another. And yet God of his goodness so worketh by them that they who will be ruled by him may see them turn to their profit and benefit according to the sayings of the apostle to wit that all things turn to the best of them that love God. The like said St. James, he said, Count it, my brethren, matter of the greatest rejoicing when you fall into divers tribulations. 
And it is a double mercy of God that it's so. A double mercy of God, he said, that we are constantly afflicted. It's a double mercy of God. <laughs> because if we are because we are so corrupt and so defiled that if things succeed with us after our desire, we are usually greatly lifted up and forget ourselves in such a wise that our pride becomes intolerable and we shamefully disguise ourselves so that such as fear God and behold him us are greatly grieved to see our insults. Therefore, to keep us from such disguisedness and the danger that cometh thereby, what a favor of God is this, that he after some prosperity doth use to exercise us with new combats and new afflictions and all to hold us under, yea, and much to benefit us. For it's better to go to heaven with one foot than to go to hell with both. So he will rather save us with putting us to some pain and grief rather than to lose and forget us utterly by suffering us to enjoy uncertainty and momentary prosperity and the pleasures of sin for a while. Only this watchword is necessary to be taken of us, that although we now, that although we be now and then humbled with some afflictions, so that for the time we be brought to obedience and subdued it to meet for us, yet because we do so soon wash them off, I I love that phrase. I highlighted those words. Oh, we do so soon wash them off. Therefore, we have need of many. As mallets to beat us down one after another and bruise us that so we may be meekened under the mighty hand of God. We must be importunate with him in our prayers that we may be more and more accustomed daily to bear the cross patiently and contentedly till he have perfected and brought to his appointed measure the good works that he works to be done in us. Oh, dear saint of God, just know this, that every affliction of our God brings, that our God brings in your life, especially after some great victory or deliverance. Every affliction God brings in our lives is another token of His kindness in conforming you to the likeness of His Son. He was afflicted like no man ever was. He was more afflicted than any man and by his afflictions, he is bringing you and bringing me into the likeness of his son. I said to you at the outset in my introduction, 
we would come to the end of chapter 11 and think, surely we've seen enough. We have the man's biography. Surely we've seen enough. But no, the Spirit of God said no. There's another scene. I want you to see it. Another scene. What is it? Oh, it's another scene of affliction, sorrow, trouble. There's a great lesson in this. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, for all things, all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed, Day by day. For our light afflictions, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far, far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen eternal. Oh, afflictions. Afflictions. I close with the words of the dear Rogers again in his preaching. He said, although the Lord causeth his children even here, sometimes in health, sometime at death, to enjoy such unspeakable feelings and operations of the Spirit, which He doth to give them such a taste of heaven as may cause them to restlessly long for it till they come there. Although the Lord cause His children, even here sometimes, in health and sometimes when they're dying, to feel the operations of the Spirit, yet He knoweth. They would say with Peter, Master, it's good for us to be here. And would think of no departure if this should be their ordinary diet. Therefore, he rather considers what they can digest more than what they would afford. And then says to them, My grace shall neither be given in superlative nor in penury, but it shall be sufficient. I hope you're finding it so in your own experience. Turn with me, please, again in your hymn book. Hymn number 720. Will you stand with me to sing, please, 720?
Stand up, my soul, shake off thy fears, anger the gospel armor on. March to the gates of endless joy, where Jesus, thy great captains go. Hell and thy sins resist thy course, but hell and sin are vanquished foes. Thy Savior nailed them to the cross and sung the triumph when he rose. Then let my soul march boldly on, press forward to the heavenly gate. Their peace and joy eternal reign and glittering rolls for conquerors way. There shall I wear a starry crown and triumph in almighty grace. And while the armies of the sky join in my glorious leader's praise.